Welcome to Passing Judgment, a podcast about politics and the law and a lot of things in between. And we're going to talk about a lot of things in between today. I'm your host, Loyola Law School Professor Jessica Levinson. And today I'm so excited to say we are joined by David Benson, going by Dave. Dave is the principal owner of DJ Benson and Associates in Florida, a senior advisor to the Center for Personal Protection and Safety, a retired senior Department of State diplomatic security special agent and threat assessment professional, and the host of a new podcast, Believe What You See and Hear, which you can find at conveniently www.believewhatyouseeandhear.com. Welcome, Dave, and thank you for passing judgment with us. Oh, thank you for having me. It's a privilege. So we're recording this episode mere hours before the inauguration, and I can't tell you how many texts I have sent to friends and colleagues or have received that have said some version of, I'm anxious that Biden, Harris, Pelosi, and Leahy, which will be the four in line to succession, are going to be in the same place at the same time. This is not a text that we would normally send right before the inauguration. Are these fears overblown or is this rational in what seems to be our new normal? So I think it's a great question, particularly under the present circumstances. First of all, I think it's human nature. Uh, a lot of folks in our country don't focus on the fact that when you have an inauguration, you not only do you have the key players of the presidential succession, uh, you have the president or the president-elect soon to become president. So I think some anxiety about that is, is quite normal. In this particular case, it's exacerbated by some of the events that we've been through. Uh, the one message I want to send today is that extraordinary precautions are taken for every inauguration, this one included, and there will be policies, procedures, and plans in place to cover virtually any contingency, which sadly was not in place at the Capitol. So can you tell us a little bit about how the security this time around might be different? I mean, in a way, intuitively, I would think, oh, it's going to be less because there will be fewer people as a result of the fact that we're in the middle of a pandemic and it's going to be, quote, reimagined. But I think, could you peel back the curtain a little bit for our listeners and talk about, you know, what exactly does beefed up security mean? Yeah, it's kind of a misnomer. Uh, in this particular case, uh, one of the smartest things they did in the wake of the tragedy, the storming of the United States Capitol, is they extended uh, the time frame for a designated national uh, special security event, or an SSE. And that really, what that really means is that the Secret Service is under the one unified command that all the other state and federal uh, authorities that are involved in the process fall into place and they have a unified command, unified communication structure. So we have a same plan set except for more specific potential targeting that we've heard through intelligence. And so some of the contingencies that they work on all the time, as a matter of fact, all year round, uh, now come to the forefront. Uh, a civil unrest, mob rule, insurrection, those types of things are not unthought of, but now they're brought to the forefront. And that's what makes this particular inaugural unique, I think. Now, that makes a lot of sense. I want to ask you about, we're, we're basically going through my top anxieties. And the first is the thing that's going to happen immediately, which is the inauguration. And the second relates to the inauguration. And it's a headline that I just never thought I would talk about, which is that the FBI is vetting 
American National Guard troops after concerns that essentially those in charge of our safety might be aiding, abetting, passively aiding and abetting people who would pose a threat to our elected representatives. Um, How serious is this threat of members, just more broadly, how serious is this threat of members of the military or law enforcement becoming essentially radicalized, turning on us and becoming a threat, not a protection? Well, in this particular case, everything is exacerbated by recent events. It's always been a potential concern, which is why we do some of the vetting, both in the military and within my former brethren as a federal law enforcement agent. Um, Politics are politics, personal views are what they are. And while we'd like to think that we're all trained and we took an oath to the same constitution uh, to look beyond those things, occasionally uh, we have some events. The difference now is that it's right in our face. Uh, It's pretty clear now. And of course, it's very early days in the independent inquiry. But it's pretty clear that we had some folks that were inciting violence before they ever went to that speech uh, and were planning for weeks, if not months, uh, to cause some of this problem. So uh, I think that's what's different this time. The other thing that's really daunting uh, at the very last minute, providing security background updates for 25,000 civilian soldiers uh, is, is absolutely unprecedented. What concerns me about it as much as anything else is where are we pulling those resources uh, from other things like other types of counterterrorism uh, and other things so that we can pull this particular feed off. So it's, it's monumental logistically, if nothing else. So what you're saying, which is another level of terrifying that I hadn't considered, is because this is such an enormous effort to make sure that those who are protecting us are not, in fact, a threat to us, that we're kind of like a balloon animal. We're moving people to point A, and point B might become a little less safe, at least for a period of time. Yeah, it it very much can become a moving target. In my business, when you have what we call concentric uh, rings of security, which is what you would normally have and what you'll certainly have uh, tomorrow uh, during the inaugural, um, you know, you have different types of access control, different types of personnel that are going to be doing the screening and what we call tripwires. So what happens if they, uh, you know, breach the outer ring, which is what happened all too quickly Uh, at the Capitol, there has to be an appropriate response. Well, in this case, uh, for reasons that we're still looking into, there was either no response, an inappropriate response, or a bad response. Uh, So you immediately, things start to overtake themselves. And when you hear things like, hey, we were overtaken, uh, we didn't expect this, um, those are the types of things that really worry me, because a breakdown in communication uh, particularly in a crisis situation, is the beginning of the end sometimes in keeping people safe. So that is that's really the concern. As far as it being a, a moving balloon or a moving target, you're absolutely right. So one of the things that concern professionals like myself is, let's say you secure the Capitol building, you secure, for lack of a better term, all of the District of Columbia, the official part of it. Um, the weakest link is right outside of the last perimeter. So I think one of the concerns we need to have is as much about uh, what might happen at the Capitol, although I think they've got things under control. I really do, particularly in the wake of what we saw. Uh, But what other softer targets could be hit, such as state capitals, such as other landmarks, these types of things? And that's why I think this is really more of a marathon instead of a sprint. 
We're just not responding to one particular series of events. I think some of this could be around for a while. So um, I will say whenever I hear you, a security expert, say what really concerns me, um, that is more than enough for me to be truly and deeply concerned. We had uh, an epidemiologist on, and I feel like security experts and epidemiologists, when they're worried, listeners, that's when it's time to really um, just get in the bunker. But Dave, you mentioned, and I want to pick up on this, you said, I think things, I'm paraphrasing, but I think things are better in the capital or secured in the capital. And I did want to ask you about this because I had the opportunity to interview two members of Congress last week, and they both separately brought up this idea that they're worried about their security when they go to work, when they go to work in the people's house. One of them said that there's basically a text chain where they're talking about where members of Congress are talking about where to buy bulletproof vests. Um, Another said that, you know, he's reading headlines and he thinks that they're rational. You know, should members of Congress fear for their lives when they go to do nothing more than represent us? Are those fears now overblown? Do you think that in the sense, because of what happened in the Capitol, that's now the safest place in the world to be? Or, which is, I guess, a really long way of saying, have we learned our lesson and for how long? Yeah, well, one of the things that, I, that I've said recently, and I think it bears repeating, Jessica, is that we have a time-honored tradition in this country of getting things right after we have chaos. Yeah. 9-11, uh, Oklahoma City bombing, uh, whatever it might be. And so uh, we've got everybody's attention right now. And the individuals you're talking about, the, uh, the members of Congress, they are protected individuals, but they all don't have the same level of protection. Some of it's resources, uh, some of it's politics, frankly. But the fact of the matter is, I'm a firm believer and you have to be mindful and not fearful and do the positive things you can do to continue to do your job, but take advantage and be prudent and do whatever you need to do to keep yourself and your family safe, uh, not just rely upon. Uh, the Capitol Police or the, the local police department, whatever, that, that really ties into, um, um, you know, uh, knowledge is power. And what can you do on a personal level to help mitigate and, and, and you know, make you more safe and secure? Yeah, I hear you talking a lot about personal responsibility and essentially trusting your instincts, I think, which is, and this is the title again of your podcast, Believe What You See and Hear. I was going to ask you about this at the end, but there are there kind of a top few pieces of information that you give to private citizens, whether or not they work in government buildings, where you say, you know, if your senses are on alert, trust them, do this. Are there things the people who are listening at home should be aware of and should think about when it comes to their own personal safety? Yes, there are. And a lot of it is transferable. And I've given some of the same briefings to fairly high level protectees. I've had the privilege of uh, protecting in my career, both Cabot 11 officials, uh, royal family members, all the way down uh, to community groups. And that is pay attention to your surroundings. Have a plan. Be prepared to respond if the unthinkable happens. What tends to happen too much, and we see this with active shooter events and other mass casualties, is, and we heard this last week, Gosh, I didn't think this, I didn't see this coming. I never thought this could happen. Well, you know what? 
We need to play the what if game all the way down to the individual level. And that's the same thing with our government officials. Yes, uh, there are very well-trained men and women to protect them uh, and, and resources and uh, in place. But you need to help yourself and be aware of your surroundings. You know, if you, uh, if, if, if you see just as an example, and we don't know that that actually occurred, that there appears to be an unauthorized tour going through the Capitol building, and it seems unusual to me, you probably should let somebody know, let someone else sort out uh, if that behavior was appropriate. And I don't think we see enough of that. What we do see is how are you going to keep us safe? How are you going to protect us? How could this have ever happened? And what do we need to do to fix that? And I, I'm suggesting it's a symbiotic uh, relationship. You know, I, I feel like this is a microcosm of how we think about so many things, which is you just go ahead and deal with that. And I won't concern myself with it, which in a way makes sense. I mean, I remember working, I worked at a federal courthouse for a year and I never thought about security because I so trusted the people in charge. And frankly, I cannot imagine that what happened at the Capitol would have happened in that particular federal courthouse. I just given how incredibly responsive they were to comparatively little things. But I think the point you're making is let's not just decide we have no role in our own security. That's exactly right. No, that's exactly right. And we really are. It might sound a little corny, but we're all in this together. And so, uh, you know, if we have concerns about the safety of our public officials, about the safety of our institutions, we need to, as a group, look at those. And as voters, you vote people in, you vote people out, you advocate policies. As government servants, uh, you look at these things and you try to see not blaming people. The blame game isn't helpful. There's plenty of that to go around, I promise you. But to try to find relative solutions to either mitigate or avoid some of the challenges that we have. I feel very comfortable saying, Jessica, that the event at the, at the courthouse, I mean the courthouse, excuse me, the Capitol building did not ever have to occur, period. So I keep kind of circling around this, but let's talk about what happened in the Capitol. And you just said it didn't ever need to occur why not? Specifically, I know it seems obvious in hindsight, of course, we can look back and say X, Y, Z, but you're the expert. What are the X, Y, and Z that should have happened? Well, first and foremost, intelligence. What are we hearing? What do we know? What are we anticipating? And whether it be for an event like this or for an individual, I do a lot of work with behavioral threat assessment uh, for clients. Uh, what is of concern to us and how concerning should it be? And then what is the intervention strategy to do something about it? And so um, it was pretty clear to anybody that was on social media or had their television on uh, with the weeks heading up to that event that there was going to be some type of rally, maybe some potential problems. What I can't fathom is what happened with the breakdown with intelligence. Uh, if they saw that coming and the FBI said, hey, we passed this on to the Joint Terrorism Task Force around the country, particularly in the district, did they not specifically pass that on to the, to the affected agencies? Um, did they not invoke some of these crisis management plans that I know, I know are already in place? I used to work on them when I was with the government, particularly for things like the inaugural. But what happens if you have some type of a tragedy uh, at the nation's capital? or the White House, or whatever it may be. It just didn't happen. And by the time we got any type of a semblance of response, it was too little too late. 
And as I saw a few times, it almost made a bad situation worse because we had other police authorities coming without kind of a unified command on what the rules of engagement are and engaging with the mob. And at least in the short term, we had more brush fires occur, so to speak, because we didn't understand that once everything kind of coordinated, things began to calm down. So we had a, and I said this before, uh, and I don't know which it is. I suspect it's a combination of the two. It was either misfeasance, people weren't doing their jobs correctly, or Lord forbid, some of it was malfeasance, meaning they either deliberately or they did not choose for political reasons or whatever to bring the proper resources to bear to deal with that threat. Well, that was my next question, which is it door number one, which is unsettling or door number two, which is deeply, deeply unsettling that there was at the very least kind of passive assistance, if not active assistance. So I'll go on to the question that I had after that. You mentioned on social media that basically people were very openly telegraphing, here's what we're going to do, not just people, but the president of the United States, you know, this is going to happen on this day. It's going to be wild. How much have social media platforms worried you in terms of your risk assessments in mainly in these types of large gatherings, but also maybe on the smaller scale uh, and maybe the private smaller scale. So we're obviously talking about a huge scale public gathering, the president of the United States holding a rally, but it's a very broad question, which boils down to how much is social media fostering the ability to engage in these kind of big and small insurrections? It has a huge impact. I see it in my own consultancy. The vast majority of uh, valid threats that we see now for organizations and clients are coming from social media. The other piece that I don't think can be uh, talked about enough is this propensity for self-radicalization. You no longer need to go to a rally. You no longer need to find other people in person that have like ideas. You can just pop online and find sympathetic support for some pretty off the wall and in some cases dangerous mindsets. Uh, And to certain types of individuals, particularly those that have trouble dealing with life's challenges or coping, uh, that becomes their catalyst. And so in addition to organized groups, in addition to worrying about the Proud Boys, uh, uh, you know, at where, whatever, it might, QAnon, whatever it might be, we have to worry about potential uh, lone wolves that are self-radicalized, that have made their mind up either based upon what they heard a politician say or the rhetoric that they're reading and watching, or they've decided in their own mind that they're going to go from thoughts to actions. So we have a, a broad spectrum of potential threats out there that have to be dealt with. How can we deal with this self-radicalization? I mean, this is an unfair question to ask of any person, but you're exactly right. I mean, technology has changed our behavior in ways that are incredibly democratizing and in ways that I think pose a immediate danger to our safety. Is there counter-programming that we can engage in? What, as a security expert, would you suggest? Well, to the extent that we can help folks filter through what's true and what's not. You know, what is what is a big lie? What is just a falsehood? Uh, 
you know, we're at the point now where rightly or wrongly, some of the folks in that crowd, okay, many of the folks in that crowd, regardless of their motivations, believe that the election was stolen, believe that it was part of their job to take their country back, believe that insurrection was the only answer to the question. And so uh, being able to, to, to separate that filtering fact from fiction, uh, providing positive alternatives, uh, and had, frankly, having consequences. Uh, for this type of behavior and this kind of behavior online. And so it's going to be interesting to see just how serious down the road the social media companies continue to take this. Is it just a one time to block the president of the United States or are they going to continue to look at this uh, from a potential, uh, you know, a greater harm to everybody? So tell me if we're dancing too close to what feels like outside your wheelhouse do you think that this should be private companies, as you mentioned, that say we care about security too? Twitter shutting off the president's account, well, frankly, not seemingly an act of heroism when that happens, what, 10 days before he leaves office. Um, Correct. Should the government also be involved in that? I mean, I, of course, deeply worry about free speech issues, but it. Is the ideal, in from your perspective, both from a safety perspective and a policy perspective, for the social media companies to basically shut down these accounts? And then how much do you worry about forcing this type of speech underground? Well, uh, being a career diplomat and at the risk of sounding like one here to answer your question, I think we need a public-private partnership. I think we need to look at this and come up with some rational approaches, not political, not, you know, not my way or the highway, but understand what makes sense. And most importantly, what will the American people uh, tolerate? Uh, they have a they have a say in this. The other thing is there's a huge difference. And I know I'm getting into your wheelhouse. So forgive me. I didn't even stay at a Holiday Inn Express last night between hate speech and free speech. And I will tell you that that's still greatly misunderstood uh, writ large. And I think we need to have some conversations about what that is. Uh, as well. It's not going to be easy. Um, they're going to find other ways. There's other parlors out there. There's other mediums to do it. But I don't think we can continue to allow it to fester and to percolate with having some response. I could not agree more. There is such a massive misunderstanding of what the First Amendment protects, which is just incursions by government actors, not private entities. This is why Twitter, Facebook, TikTok have their own guidelines and can say, you transgressed them, you didn't transgress them. And there's a huge misunderstandings as to what hate speech actually is, what obscenity is, uh, what incitement is. And these are issues we've tried to explore a little bit on the podcast, and we will again. And I'm glad that you brought it up in this context, because I think it's so important. And this does seem to me to be one of the next or not next, but this is one of the current big threats, which is how easy it is to create a community without ever meeting people, to self-radicalize, and then to inflict harm off of the computer screen, to inflict real harm. Is, is this to you, if I said, what are your, just really broadly speaking, what are your biggest security fears? Is this one of them, the use of social media for self-radicalization? Uh, yes, uh, it certainly is. And this coming from somebody that I've, particularly for my, my age and age group, uh, I use social media more than a lot of different folks. And I really see the value, but I also see the downside to it. Uh, so that's, that's number one. I think number two, um, 
we need to take in a community pr- approach to these things. Uh, it's not a political issue. Uh, say keeping people safe is not a left or right issue. And we're going to have a hard time uh, kind of, uh, you know, excising that. But the fact of the matter is, that's what we hear. Uh, you know, do you wear a mask? Do you not wear a mask? Yeah. Are you for this? Are you against that? Uh, politics, keeping people safe and secure and basic decency and belief in our country's values is not a political uh, process. Uh, and uh, even though politics plays a role in it. I can't tell you how much I appreciate you being the one to emphasize this. And we've had, as I've mentioned, we've had scientists on, um, now you as a security expert, it has nothing to do with your views on tax policy or in the environment or immigration or federalism. This is just a basic issue of will you be safe in the world? And I appreciate you contextualizing it this way. Are there other issues? If I were to say to you, Dave, what are your top two? We talked a lot about social media, but are there other kind of big systemic issues where you say we're not doing a good job at tackling this? Yeah, I think bias is a big one. I mean, acknowledging that we all have them uh, for better or worse, and we need to start recognizing and acknowledging that there are some challenges with that, that our view of the world is very much shaped about how we were brought up, how we were raised, what was our environment, what has happened to us. Uh, And that's one of the reasons why we find ourselves in this situation. Everybody views a situation that appears to be identical different, whether it be uh, someone walking down the street at three o'clock in the morning and they're of color. What is my view of it? What is the the African-American community of it? Whatever it might be, we have to have these conversations and that violence is never appropriate. It's never a good answer. Uh, And we have to find a way to learn to de-escalate each other's tensions. I I do a lot of de-escalation training. And I will tell you, um, you know, you can't de-escalate a conversation if you're angry yourself. Uh, If you don't believe in what you're doing, that's not going to happen. So I think, uh, you know, having kind of a community approach to this, uh, if you see something, say something, really mean it. Don't tolerate this type of behavior in your community and see what you can do uh, to make it a, a, mo- a more productive part of society. So those are the two big things, I think. Uh, and then recognizing that government, and again, this is not a political statement, government can not nor should they do it all. And that includes law enforcement. Are there issues? You bet they are. Do they need to be changed? Absolutely. But they can't be done uh, in a vacuum. Uh, and we do have recourses as citizens if we don't like what we see. We can vote people out of office. We can vote new people into office. We can get involved in our communities to understand each other a little better. And if that's Pollyanna-ish, I'll give it a shot because I've seen some pretty hideous things living and working around the world from terrorist bombings all the way up to atrocities. And it all boils down to how people relate to each other and what their vision uh, of their self is. Maybe this is just a function of how much over the last few years I feel like has been not based in reality, but you bringing up the issue of bias, I think is so deeply important. And this has an issue, obviously, far outside of just security, where I increasingly feel like you show the country an object and half the country says, what a great triangle. And the other half of the country says, I love that circle, or I hate that circle. And I'm I'm grateful that you brought it up in this context. I have one more big 
substantive question for you, which is outside of what happened in the Capitol and outside of the inauguration. And but it does have to do with security. And it seems to me that the only reason we're not reading headlines about kids being murdered in schools is because kids are not in school right now because we're in the middle of a pandemic. And I wanted to broadly ask you if you could, you know, wave a magic wand and approach school shootings in a different way, if there's some advice that you had to schools and lawmakers and parents, I think a lot of people feel truly terrified and they, they look to people like you with decades of expertise to say, what can I be doing? Yeah, well, it really has to be to be effective. And we've seen it happen in some places effectively. It has to be a layered approach. And the first layer is awareness. Uh, if you see something, say something. And then the, the most important piece is, well, who do we report it to? And what do you want to know? And then what is the organization that it's reported to? What are they prepared uh, to do about that. And when we see people that are troubled, when we see people that are potentially going down what I call the pathway to violence, um, we have to assess that. What's the likelihood? Do they need some counseling? Do they need some medical help? Are there other intervention strategies that w- what we can do? Uh, putting putting school resources off- officers, excuse me, around the country is, is a really nice idea, but it's not going to solve the problem. That's the end result. By the time somebody comes to school and they confront an armed police officer, uh, our, our plan is already broken down. So it has to be interactive. We have to talk to each other and we have to recognize that there are some alternatives uh, that can make a real difference on that. And communication uh, between schools and teachers and PTAs and the community and law enforcement and government officials. And yes, we have to be prepared uh, for that response that no one wants to have to deal with. But I, we call them the three R's. Readiness. What are you going to do? You train, you brief people, you prepare them. Um, uh, you know, response. What do you do if you have to do something, if you find yourself in, the, in a wrong situation at the wrong time? And then the other one is recovery. How do we recover as a school? How do we recover as a, as a community? How do we recover as a society in dealing with these things? So I think those are the three big things. That's an awful lot to answer to a pretty uh, simple question, but that's kind of my view. And that's what I try to work on every day from awareness. Oh, no, I think that that's an appropriate answer to a question that weighs on the minds of a lot of people. Um, And your common sense approach is just incredibly refreshing. And now we've learned a lot from you. I want to learn a little bit more about you. I always ask our guests the same three questions at the end of these episodes. Hopefully this should be a little breath for the audience and for you to not be talking about, frankly, mass murders and security threats. So question number one, which famous person, dead or alive, would you want to invite to a dinner party and why? I think it, right now, and it's changed over the years, but I think right now it would be Abraham Lincoln. I have lots of questions for Honest Abe, because we now know as great as he was, he was far from perfect. He had some amazing challenges that he had to deal with and how he did that. Uh, And this is coming from someone that's been privileged enough to uh, protect foreign officials my whole career. So I've been around some pretty interesting people. So to me, it would be Abe Lincoln. 
Now, let's stay with the food theme for a minute. You're going to be stranded on a desert island and you can bring one meal. What is it? Well, I don't know if we're going to have a pizza oven, but it would be pizza. If not, it would be uh, several cases of nacho chips and cheese. Uh, That sounds disgusting, but that was my go-to diet when I was in college. I can't do that anymore, but if you put that in front of me, or, or, or nachos, uh, that, that's going to be, I'm going to be your guy to gobble that up. I again, agree with you, truly disgusting. So, and the, <laughs> the, the last question, you get one superpower for an hour. What is it and why? Wow. That's a good one. I would think, well, I can only have one. So I would say discernment to be able to recognize things before they go astray or they go awry. I think I have a little bit of that gift in my work, but boy, would I love to be able to see well in advance where we're going in a particular situation. Cause we seem as a society to be ill-equipped to do that stuff sneaks up on us, even though it was 15 years or in this case, four years in the making. So I think it would be discernment. Dave Benson. I have had such a good time passing judgment with you. Thank you for your time. Oh, it's my pleasure. Thank you. I hope I can come on again. Unfortunately, fortunately, I think we will absolutely be needing your expertise again. I want to tell people where they can find you. The website for DJ Benson and Associates is securingsouls.com. Dave is host of the podcast, Believe What You See and Hear. I am now going to be a listener. I think that this will be indispensable. You can find it at www.believewhatyouseeandhear.com. You can find Dave on Twitter at David J. Benson one That's the number one, not spelled out. You can find me on Twitter at Levinson Jessica, the podcast on Twitter at Pass Judgment Pod, and on Instagram at Passing Judgment Pod. This is where I always thank the listeners. First, I really want to thank my co-host and producer, Joe Armstrong, for encouraging me to have this conversation because I learned a lot. And listeners, I hope that you do too. We don't want to be forced to having some of these conversations, but we're very glad that we can have them with people like Dave and that you are along for the ride. And there was a lot of extremely useful and practical information here. So with that, listeners, have a wonderful day and we'll talk to you next time.